This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, I'm very excited to bring you the story and wisdom of a very special lady. My guest tonight is award-winning author, speaker, and religious scholar, Diana Butler-Bass. And we're going to be discussing, among other things, her latest book, which is called Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. Uh, Be sure, as always, to stay with us during the breaks where you'll be hearing from our watch team of contributors who will bring you information on your health, technology, law, and leadership. And please uh, make sure to visit us at womentowatch.net so that you can check out our lineup Um, Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Women to Watch as well. And now I'm very excited and thrilled to welcome to the show Diana Butler-Bass. Again, Diana is um, an author, speaker, independent scholar, and um, she holds a Ph.D. as well in religious studies from Duke University. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. I'm really very happy to meet you face-to-face. Sue. Well, thank you. I We did have a wonderful phone call the very first time we spoke, and I think we both agree that we will not have enough time to get in all of the topics we would love to discuss, but I will do my best. I think that first conversation lasted an hour on I, the phone. I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> So, um, and you're visiting us today from, did you travel from uh, Virginia or yes, D.C.? I, I live in uh, the suburbs of Northern Virginia, outside okay. of Washington, D.C. Terrific. So, uh, the, the first thing I want to talk about is, is your background and your upbringing, because I think that it's always important to kind of um, show the listeners what it was about your childhood and and you as a young girl that shaped who you are today and the path you decided to follow. And I understand you were born in Baltimore, but you grew up in Arizona. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I'm getting ready to turn 60. And so it's a sort of an interesting moment in a woman's life where you think a lot about the past and these kinds of questions about what shaped you. And uh, one of the things that I can now embrace is that I grew up in the middle Atlantic, in the middle of a state, in the middle of the 20th century. And my life in some ways has been shaped by growing up in that sort of, and I was a middle-class family. And so being sort of on, not on a side necessarily, but right in the middle and learning to listen to voices from a lot of different perspectives, having geographies right to the north of me and to the south of me that were very different, and uh, 
I, I just uh, have come to understand that there was some sort of special moment uh, right then when, you know, I was little, when I was uh, growing up, when I was able to hear the world around me in a fairly unique way. And, and then when I was 13 years old, my parents decided that they'd had enough of the East Coast. Both of my families had been in the East for more than 200 years. Um, so my parents wanted a big adventure, and they pulled up stakes and moved us to Arizona. And then all of a sudden, the world around me was completely different than everything I had ever known. And my capacity to be able to sit in a landscape and listen to it and hear the voices that were around me uh, became a real gift um, out in Arizona because the voices of the land and the people and the culture were so different. And so I was I was really shaped, um, I think, by this sort of experience of growing up in the middle and uh, then being transplanted into this vast wilderness of the West in the early 1970s. So you went on to, to study religion. And um, I, I'm wondering if, as a little girl, were you intrigued by religion? Were you always questioning and curious about your faith? You, you were raised a United Methodist, correct? And eventually, and we'll talk about this, you um, discovered a new religion. Um, but when you were little, was that something you were always interested in and, and questioning? It was. I, I loved Sunday school when I was uh, growing up, and I also loved going to what I called the big church with my mother. And I have very strong memories of my younger brother and sister going off to their, their Sunday school classrooms or the church nursery school, and my mother taking me, I was the eldest, up to the balcony of the big church. And there we would stand, and um, she would open her hymnal. And one of the early hymns in the Methodist hymn, hymn book was the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And I have this clear uh, memory of standing in that balcony on a beautiful day with the sun coming through the stained glass windows. My mother was wearing a yellow suit um, with a little pillbox hat looking all the world like Jackie Kennedy. And she was pointing out the words of holy, holy, holy to me and teaching that hymn to me. And so that's probably my earliest memory of religion. And it was beautiful. It was all about sun and light and relationship. And as I grew up, I, I began to learn that it was actually the women in my family who were really the guardians of, of faith. Um, my mom, with uh, her very committed Methodism, uh, my great aunt, who had been a Methodist suffragette at the end of the 19th wow. century, and um, also my uh, grandmother, who died uh, long before I was born. Uh, she had been raised Methodist, but then she converted to Pentecostalism. And that was in the early part of the 20th century. She became a Pentecostal lay preacher. And she went through the eastern shore of Maryland with a couple of her cousins and led revival meetings. And she actually knew um, Amy Semple McPherson, who was one of the most famous Pentecostal evangelists in American history. So um, I come from this line of these sort of incredibly strong women of faith, and I got that gene. Which is fantastic. Yeah, it's really interesting because my, my sister didn't get it. My sister is an atheist, and um, it's a 
really amazingly beautiful thing how well my sister and I get along and the great conversations that we can have about this family history. Um, most of the men in my family were free thinkers and atheists. And so my sister wound up more like them and I wound up more <laughs> like the, 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 the female genetic religion right. line. <laughs> you know, one of the things I love about you and the work that you do is that it has always been this exploration and this um, desire to understand and learn and know as opposed to preaching, which I think um, for any of us that were raised in a particular church or faith um, often felt that. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to talk about a serious topic because the, the irony of your visit here today is that the grand jury uh, report came out regarding the Catholic Church. And I absolutely want to speak to you about that as a, a person who was raised Catholic uh, and for many, many years, was kind of living that faith, not questioning. Um, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to start with a quote um, that you shared recently that was very courageous and I think uh, speaks to what we're going to go into next. Stay with us, and uh, you're listening to Women to Watch. We'll be right back. Now, the Women to Watch, Legal Watch. Hi, this is Carol Weinman with Legal Watch. Did you know that low self-esteem is perhaps the greatest byproduct of having autism? It's a characteristic that results from living a life of daily anxiety, self-doubt, and isolation. When educators and medical professionals attempt to provide external fixes for those with autism, they often completely miss the mark. Low self-esteem colors how we see the world, and what happens to us. As doubt takes up residence in our minds with thoughts of, I can't do that, or I am bad, these beliefs are hard to dismiss. The impact of low self-esteem bleeds into every aspect of a person's life. When I was raising my son with autism, I knew early on that I had to keep my eye on safeguarding his self-esteem. The reactions he received from teachers, students, and unknowns on the street and in the mall affected his view of himself. And while we are all subjected to others' reactions, those with autism are ridiculed and bullied every day just for being who they are. So why am I talking to you about this? Because I know that your child's IEP and school experience hugely impact his or her self-esteem. Five days a week for nine months, that is the world your child lives in. How we feel about ourselves dictates how we create our world and how we see ourselves. Punitive measures written into the IEP are often ineffective for those with autism. And the behavior of those with autism must be properly analyzed to arrive at an adequate solution. Your child's school experience creates a lasting imprint on his or her psychological well-being. For more information, please contact me at AutismLegal.com. Attorney and leading autism expert Carol Weinman offers one-of-a-kind solutions to your legal and autism needs. Recognized nationwide as the one and only autism legal expert, Weinman delivers exceptional results. Weinman is a master at putting together pieces to create a remarkable outcome. Contact Weinman at 215-591-3614 or at autismlegal.com. That's autismlegal.com. Carol Weinman, the leading nationwide expert autism attorney. 
Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Listening to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this evening by Diana Butler Bass. She is an author, speaker, independent scholar who specializes in American religion and culture. And uh, just before the break, I said I wanted to come back and read a quote that you um, recently shared with the public. When my mother sent me an email in January of 2007, saying my uncle was dead, I replied, thank God. It was the first time that any mention of my uncle and a word of gratitude ever combined in a sentence. Tell the listeners what uh, what you were referring to there. Um, that particular event, oh, I still remember it. it just feels so fresh when I got that email. Uh, was referring to my to my mom's uh, brother who had abused me when I was 14 years old. And uh, I decided when I wrote this new book on gratitude that it was a story I really wanted to share. And there were all sorts of reasons behind me wanting to finally share that story. I, I wrote the section of the book months before the Me Too movement started, probably about four or five months before Rose McGowan came out and started talking about her experiences at, of Harvey Weinstein and th- being an actress who was abused um, by a person in power. I had just, I had felt bad about the election, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I'm sure that there are people in your audience who, who like President Trump and I respect all kinds of people for their choices in that matter. Uh, But I was really disturbed in the lead up by the reports of his disregard uh, for women and the the rights to their own bodies. And so we moved into him being president, and I just felt like I I really wanted to share my story. It was a way of empowering myself uh, that I didn't want my story to, to go away. And plus, writing about gratitude, one of the things that I did not want people to assume is that I had had a really good life. I think that sometimes when you write a book about a positive emotional subject, joy or happiness or generosity, you know, people assume that you sort of are perfect. And uh, I wanted people to know that I had had a really hard path. And it's those difficult things that often keep us from feeling from feeling grateful. So those two events, the sort of the political climate and my own um, personal questions about what keeps us from feeling grateful conspire to have me tell the story for the first time. And I'm 59. This happened when I was 14 years old. So to tell it for the first time in public. Did it change you? 
did something did something change in you um, when you shared that openly? I was surprised um, when the book came out that some of the initial interviewers didn't want to talk about it. Uh, it was literally like people were walking on eggshells around that part of the book. Mm-hmm. And the only people who talked about it at first were a couple of, of women who were interviewers. No man mentioned it to me um, until a, a really nice uh, fellow who has a, a podcast out of the Midwest, a guy named David Dalt, who does a podcast on a lot of religion subjects. He mentioned it and mm-hmm. um, did it in a very uh, feeling and thoughtful, intelligent way. But I was sort of shocked by that. You know, here I tell this this story and nobody wanted to engage it. Uh, after the book had been out for a little while, the people at the On Being blog um, asked me if I would share that with their readers. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay. And they took part of the book. I added a little bit more um, in terms of making the story a little richer for the blog. And um, I was terrified the day it came out. Really? You know, because I will say when I read it, the first thing I thought about was how beautifully and thoughtful you wrote that. There wasn't, um, I didn't sense emotion, anger, bitterness, regret. I, I really was um, moved by the way it was written. And, and you kind of took us through your own thought process and growth and evolution from that experience. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what happens when you wait a really long time to tell a deeply personal story. Um, even though I said I, you know, I really was scared. It, it was more frightening, frightening to have it go on the blog because the online audience is so anonymous. Whereas when I wrote it in a book, I think that Grateful is my 10th book. And so I have a certain trust in my core audience, Mm -hmm. and I felt like I was writing for those people. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't really afraid of of the people I already knew who might buy my book. But when you put a story like that out in public, and all of a sudden it's sort of floating around anonymously to a billion people on the planet, then it becomes a little more frightening. You know, will will people use this against me? Or will people misunderstand or purposefully twist my story in some way? Uh, But I felt like it was important to demonstrate just what you said, uh, that when these kinds of horrible things happen to us, they do not have to be the last word of our lives, Um, that we do have resources as humans to reach great depths of, of forgiveness, of, of compassion, of empathy, and even gratitude when circumstances have been bad. So here's a question I have for you as someone who was raised Catholic and in light of this report coming out yesterday, and I would imagine that I'm not the only one who went through conflict initially when uh, the stories of of this abuse came out, um, that we wanted to separate ourselves from an organization that would allow this to happen and yet still hold on to our beliefs and our faith. And I will say, for me personally, it made me question everything that I had ever believed. So 
as someone who has studied religion and, and um, uh, organizations that come together for a united support and belief system and, and values, how does one separate the two and not have it become a, a reflection on them as a member of that particular group? These are very difficult questions, and it takes, I, I think, takes living with the story for a while in order to be able to make those separations. Um, the story that I wrote, it, it was not a priest, it was a family member, you know, who abused me, and that offers its own problems. You know, how do you tell your mother that her brother did something awful? And and so that was, that was the issue that I had, and I... As I tell my story, I actually fled to the church uh, to find safety. Mm. And what I discovered is that I wound up in a community that, in effect, was spiritually abusive. Um, it wasn't because anybody in that community abused me, but instead they had very narrow ideas of forgiveness. They wanted to rush people to forgiveness. So if you had been hurt, Oh, well, God wants you to forgive. You must, you know, give it up. Just forget it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not easy to do. No. And I can imagine a person who has been abused by the church, by someone representing the institution, how much more difficult that is to have the theology of forgiveness being thrown in your face by a person wearing a collar who is also an abuser. So that's a, that is kind of a, a spiritual uh, double whammy and uh, not an easy thing to recover from. Yeah. We're going to take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the difference between forgiveness and acceptance. I think they're two different things. You're listening to Women to Watch. We will be right back. Women to Watch. Leadership Watch. Hi, everybody. Holly Dowling here with your Leadership Watch. And today I'm excited to share with you another powerful pillar that I've discovered after years of interviewing amazing, successful women and men around the world. And this pillar is grace. You know, we say that word and there isn't a human being out there that isn't impacted by the word grace. And when you think about that word, a lot of things come to mind. I would like you to think about grace in these terms. Who are you? When faced with adversity, do you become bitter or have you become better? Who are you when no one is watching? Grace is who you become. It's what you become and how you choose to live your life. You know, I love to think of it as when you reflect back on your trials and tribulations that I truly believe are just gifts that haven't been unwrapped yet. Do you allow your trials and tribulations to refine you? Or do you allow them to define you? It's very powerful how we observe and how we handle all the elements and the gifts and the challenges that are opportunities in life to become the refined diamond that you are. And trust me when I say I've been through very, very, very many dark times. And those challenges and those opportunities that I have set now become to realize the gifts that I've been given to become refined. And in the refining, I've become better. And as I love to share with the world, I choose to live in wow is me, not woe is me. So how are you choosing to live today? Are you living through the lens of grace and becoming the greatest version of you? 
I'd love to hear your stories, and you can hear more about amazing stories of incredible people who have overcome immense adversity and living an extraordinary life on my show, The Celebration of You, on iTunes. Please listen and hear some remarkable stories. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives, and her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Sue Rocco here with Women to Watch, and I'm talking to Diana Butler Bass. And um, just before the break, I, I had a question for you that from reading your book, I kept coming back to it. Um, forgiveness versus acceptance. So if something really horrific happens to you in your lifetime, um, which happened for you, do we have to forgive in order to move on? Or can we just accept it and move on? And and what is the difference? That's a great question. And um all I can speak from is my own experience. And and my experience points to the fact that acceptance might be the first step towards forgiveness. And certainly with um, the experience with my uncle, and also I tell another story in the book about having been fired from my first job as a college professor. And that was a brutal experience <laughs> too, frankly. They were both bad in different in different ways and, and uh, you know, lo- turn my life inside out. But um, denial is a bad thing. You know, sometimes denial psychologically helps us get through uh, the immediate trauma of events. Uh, But all my friends who are therapists and pastors say that if you stay there, it actually limits your capacity to grow as a human being. You know, you're, you're really cutting yourself off. Uh, from your own story, from your own past, and it does stuff to your body and to to your soul. So I think that ultimately we do have to come to a sense of acceptance about mm-hmm. what our stories are. And I think that's probably where I was for a really long time with the story about my uncle. And um, it wasn't until probably about a decade ago, someplace right around my 50th birthday, uh, that I began to feel like, acceptance was leading me to the doorway of forgiveness. And I had certainly had a great, you know, couple decades. It wasn't like I was sitting around not doing anything or that not forgiving, not engaging in active forgiveness had chewed me up. You know, I was, wasn't like a diminished person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just began to feel called towards something more uh, when I got to a certain age. And, and I think that everyone just has to walk this path in their own timing and let it take take them where it will. Mm. Um, I bear no judgment uh, to anybody who says that they just uh, can't forgive, you know, some sort of horrendous experience. Sometimes that's who we are as humans. And Mm -hmm. the best we can do is to say that was unjust. I, I'm so angry. It happened to me. I'm going to live my life anyway. Mm. Don't ask me about forgiveness at this point. Right. So 
the institution uh, or institutions and the different religions, do you think, do you ever think that um, it can lead to a group think and not allow for individual beliefs and values and, and spirituality? At their best, um, institutions, especially institutions of religion, are communities that gather to preserve the memory of the teachings of the founder, uh, to enact ritual, uh, to celebrate together um, holy days and mark time. And that's what institutions should be at their very best, passing on the memory of what this tradition is all about. And that's how we get them. Mm -hmm. Um, When institutions become sort of hierarchical, self-perpetuating structures that aren't in the real business of opening people up towards a living tradition, but instead become only in the business of preserving their own power. That's when institutions become evil. And it's a, it can be a short step from one to the other. You can justify your own power by saying, oh, we're just protecting the the memory of Jesus or the memory of of the Buddha or whoever it is that you're uh, trying to pass on the tradition, the the wisdom tradition of. Uh, So all institutions can go bad pretty quickly, especially Mm -hmm. religious institutions. And I think that means there has to be this sort of constant self-check within religious institutions. What are we doing this for? Mm -hmm. And um, institutions forget to do that. And... um, Instead, they just start to think, how can we be richer? How can we be bigger? And it can happen in a local level with a congregation, or it can happen on a global level, like with the Roman Catholic Church right now. And so I think there's something particularly tragic um, when religion goes awry this way. Uh, But we have to be honest to say that it has all too often gone awry that way in human history. You know, I think that the truth of the matter is that an institution is a collection of people, right? Mm -hmm. So I believe that hierarchy um, can sometimes lead to this false sense of power from those that are at the top so that all of a sudden they start to feel that they are better. um, And then that power changes um, what they're teaching. So, you know, it's carrying on traditions and stories. That's all positive. Uh, forcing someone to believe something that perhaps does not feel right to them is different. And so um, my question for you is, within these institutions, and it's it's the same for any organization, company, um, if it, there's a hierarchy, how does one lead without um, falling prey to that belief that they are somehow now above the, the congregation, the followers, the the colleagues, the employees. That's been a huge problem, particularly in Western Christianity, this idea of a vertical universe. And the idea was that, you know, God was up in heaven, and then you have this mediating class of special people who are priests and bishops and cardinals and all of this sort of stuff. And then the people are standing at the bottom of this pyramid with our hands sort of up to heaven saying, you know, fill us, fill us, fill us. Uh, My last book actually was a book called Grounded. And in that book, I take apart that whole vision of the hierarchical vertical universe. And I asked the question, what if we really understood not a God who is in a distant heaven, but God who is here with us, with neighbor and nature? 
what would our world look like? And um, I, I really deeply believe at this point in my life that part of the call of these ancient faiths is to reimagine a, a grounded vision of community, a grounded vision of God, a God who is not above, but a God who is with. And so I, I get very excited about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I do think that hierarchy ha- and verticality has been one of the greatest um, problems of I, Western Christianity. Yeah. I love how you describe that. And I agree with you. Um, one of the things I want to talk about, we're going to take another break. Um, uh, you have been speaking recently about an awakening that you see the country having and, and people having. And I see it and I feel it. And um, I want you to share your views with our listeners on that and what you think is actually happening. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. We'll be right back. Now, the Women to Watch Health Watch. From Jefferson University Hospital, this is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Osteoporosis, or fragile bones, with decreased strength means increased risk for fracture or break. Usually we think weak bones are from low estrogen after menopause, but other causes include an overactive thyroid or parathyroid, which controls calcium levels. Medications like long-term steroids or conditions that decrease calcium absorption, like celiac disease or Crohn's disease. Early diagnosis is very important because there are many treatments that can slow or even reverse the process. There are no symptoms until you break a bone, often from a force that shouldn't be enough to break a bone that's normal and stronger. Most often it's a vertebra or a little bone in the spine, usually without pain so you notice you're shrinking or you see an elderly person bent forward. Other common sites, hips, wrist, ribs, So the average woman around menopause or over age 50 should have a DEXA scan, an x-ray to measure bone strength. Personally, I broke nine bones after age 40. I must be made of potato chips. I drink milk, no risk factors. I remember learning about a hereditary condition I studied in medical school, and my sister and mother were also brittle. Dr. Serge Jabour, J-A-B-O-U-R, Jefferson Endocrinology, is a superstar. He was the one doctor who checked a urine sample. You should spill about 150 units a day. Mine was 342. I said, are you kidding me? That's my kidney joke. My kidneys were confused, throwing the calcium away. Simple treatment. Tiny water pill reminds my kidneys to hold on to my calcium and my levels are back to normal. So get regular checkups with your primary and GYN docs. But if you're at risk, see an osteoporosis specialist. 1-800-JEFF-NOW, Dr. Jabour. Because divas, if you don't take care of your bones, nobody else will. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hillsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 
1-800-227-6636. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WP. Welcome back to Women to Watch. I'm joined this evening by Diana Butler-Bass, and we're having a really rich and wonderful conversation. Um, One of the things that when I was doing my research and homework on you, I came across um, an interview you did, and you were talking about um, the difference between revivalism and awakening, which I can see the difference in those, and that you really believe there is something happening um, on a national level with people and, and their faith. I'd love for you to share your views about the awakening you think we're going through right now. The awakening that is happening all around us is sometimes hard to see uh, because it's not the sort of awakening that fills the pews of churches and synagogues, but instead it's people waking up to this new realization that God is really with us here in this world. And being passionate about the kinds of issues that arise from that. How can we really, truly love our neighbor as ourselves? How can we care for the earth in such a way that we honor the, as Christians or people who who might know the biblical story, Jews and Muslims as well, how do we um, live on the earth in such a way in which we care for the earth? and steward it for the future. Um, How can we be connected uh, deeply to the heartbeat of the world? And um, everywhere I go, there are people who are literally speaking new languages of spirituality, of faith, of joy, of justice. And it's almost a surprise when we, when we all find one another. Right. You're with a perfect stranger, and all of a sudden you start having a conversation, and you realize that, uh, a, you know, here I am, a Protestant Christian, and I might be on an airplane talking with a Buddhist from Southern California. And all of a sudden we're having this conversation about what love really means. And uh, those kinds of conversations are going on literally all over this country, mm-hmm. and they're often obscured by the the nightly news and cable broadcast and all that kind of stuff, and certainly the anger in our politics. But there is this counter-movement that is present all throughout the the North America, I'd say, uh, towards a different kind of way of understanding spirit, of compassion, of community, and of reaching toward one another uh, with love. I call that, um, you know, reaching towards God and awakening of faith. Uh, but it also includes atheists and uh, post-religious people, which I think is incredible and is a real change in Western culture. And so the idea of having secularists and Protestants and Catholics and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews all be able to share in a vision of an awakening of real compassion and neighborliness um, is an astonishing possibility that is right at our fingertips, literally every day. And to help to make that 
grow is part of my dream for my work. So what that to me points to is the commonality among all humans, no matter their religion, background, culture. What would you say is that one commonality? Is that love? Is that community? Is that a combination of things? I I do say that it's love. Um, I think about just a very basic verse in the New Testament, God is love, for love is of God and God is love. And um, if that's true, then love is the in, indeed the central thing, and, and I think that is true. Mm. Even for atheists. Well, <laughs> I'm happy for atheists to call that something else. Right. It, it does not have to have the same word. Yeah. And one of the themes that's sort of run through our conversation is the idea, you know, here I am, I'm sitting here, and you know, I, I'm an Episcopalian. My husband works at a Methodist church. I was raised in a Protestant community. Um, you know, so I, I am, in a sense, you know, a religious person. Uh, but religion has such bad press right now. Uh, I'm also a deeply spiritual person, so I'm I'm really both. I'm com- mm. I, I'm I've got both of these pieces sort of working together, and um, part of my experience as a as a Christian person, as as a person who still is tentatively and you know attached to this love of, love affair, which the church should be, um, is that. Religion should never be a scold, and it's never forcing people to believe in something. Mm-hmm. Instead, what the wisdom of these great traditions has always been about is it's an invitation. It's an invitation into a way of life that gives shape to our human experience and leads us towards greater compassion. That's what religion is ideally. Mm-hmm. It's never a scold. It's always a gift. And um, so, so I mean, I preach all the time, and I hope I never preach as you know, finger wagging, you know, at a no, congregation. I, I, I wouldn't. I don't even know the word <laughs> preach is appropriate for what you do. I think you share and you open people's minds. That's what I try to do. I try yeah. to embody the wisdom of the invitation. Yeah. And so, and, and when it comes to invitations and gifts, we can take them or not. But the truth of it is, is our lives are always surrounded by gifts. And we do accept many of those gifts in all of their different forms in our lives. And uh, one of those gifts is the gift of living with compassion. I, I want to get to the book real quickly. So the book is called Grateful. And through when I was reading the book, what I kept coming back to, the word practice was, was re- referenced often in the book. And I kept thinking to myself, is it authentic gratitude if you have to remind yourself to practice gratitude. Um, Because I'll share, I think for me personally, I truly have always felt grateful in my life, even in the dark times. And at night, one of my favorite things to do when I'm about to go to sleep is is to say, um, am I warm? Am I fed? Am I loved? And if if you have those three things, how could you not feel grateful and blessed? And uh, I share that with my kids. So I guess my question is, if you're practicing gratitude, is it authentic? Or does it have to come from a deeper place? Uh, um, Gratitude is both a feeling and an action. It's both an emotion and an ethic. And so I think that as human beings, we all have different personalities. I think we lean more easily into one, perhaps, than the other. 
Um, I, too, have always been a feeling person. My mom and I used to have a huge conflict over writing thank you notes because she always thought gratitude is that ethic, you know, the thing that you have to do. A mature life, I suspect, brings those two things together. That's what I learned while I was writing the book. How is it that we can weave our feelings and our actions into a fuller uh, life of gratitude? So, um, again, in my sort of non-judgmental frame, uh, whichever you do best, do it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to trust it's authentic for you. But to be a balanced adult person is to lift both of those capacities in harmony with one another and to be able to both feel grateful and then to act on it. Yeah. It, it reminds me of Amy Cuddy's philosophy of kind of fake it till you make it. So if you're <laughs> practicing something, eventually it becomes real. Absolutely. They teach you that in like uh, those 12-step groups. And yeah. uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom there about gratitude. You know, gratitude is actually the core of the spirituality of the recovery communities. And I, I've learned a lot from my friends in, yeah. in those about, about gratefulness. Yeah. I want to, I'm going to leave with one more um, quote. <clears throat> I think this was beautiful that you said this. Embracing our humanness with its mixture of sadness and joy fosters vulnerability and authenticity and takes us toward maturity and deep love. Wow. I I can't say it any better than those words I already put on the page. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's what I'm really interested in at this point. I mentioned I was 59. Depth, love maturity. You know, those are words we don't talk about very much in our culture, but we really should. We should. And learning. And of course, I'm so grateful that you joined me here today and and took time out of your busy schedule. I, I appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Stay with us for the next break where Mary Manzo will be bringing us our technology watch. You're listening to Women to Watch. Now, the Women to Watch. I'm Mary Manso, partner and COO of Pathways Consulting Group. New technology can be challenging. Adopting it into your day-to-day routines can be even more difficult. There's a maxim we live by in IT called KISS, or keep it simple, stupid. But as simple as you can make technology, getting someone to change their daily routine to adopt new technology is another story completely. Simple has to be relevant. As an example, manufacturers are making artificial intelligence and machine learning simple to use, but it can stir up the full range of emotions when introduced into your home or office. The gift of Google Home or Amazon Alexa can feel like you've just welcomed evil eye of Big Brother into your living room. Adoption is the challenge you're trying to solve. Every new solution requires changing behavior to fully adopt. It can be simple, but if the benefits don't outweigh the reward, Simple won't get someone to change and adopt new behaviors. To be successful here, you must first address the why or what's in it for me portion of the process. Let's say you're taking care of a loved one who has limited mobility. Add the demands of your career, raising your children, or living many miles apart. The benefits of artificial intelligence could be invaluable. Having voice-activated technology can help with the simple tasks and can be a breath of fresh air for you and your loved one. Amazon and Google both offer solutions to simplify turning on and off the lights, reading an audiobook, or putting on your favorite movie or TV show. You can control the thermostat, create a shopping list, make and answer phone calls. You can even see who's at the front door regardless of where you are in your home, and you can even unlock and lock your doors. 
Although I'm still not comfortable with AI and listening devices, being able to simplify life for my loved one satisfies the why for me. But I'm keeping my eye on you, Google. Behave. You can email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. I'd love to hear what you think. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Be sure to visit us at womentowatch.net to view our lineup, sign up for our newsletter, and leave your comments. You can find us as well on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Women to Watch. Thanks to our sponsors and contributors for helping us to tell the real story behind her title. Have a great week. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.